I'm going to invite you to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be together today as we look at an important topic. I'll share a little bit about that topic in a minute. If you have your notes, you already know what that is. Um, but we, as we dive into this section of scripture, I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew, okay? A little Hebrew this morning. This, we're going to learn the Hebrew word mishpat, okay? On, on the count of three, I want you all to say mishpat with me. Ready? One, two, three, mishpat. That was a little sorry. I was expecting, I don't know what it is. The, between our two services, it's the morning crowd that tends to have a little bit more enthusiasm, but today you have failed me. Uh, we're going to do it one more time. Ready? One, two, three, mishpat. Oh, that's so much better. We'll just edit that first part out on the online, and then uh, you guys will sound great, okay? Mishpat. This, this is the Hebrew word for, for justice. It's an important word for where we're going together. But when we think uh, of justice, we as people long for justice because we're created in the image of God. God is a just God. And so f- for that and being made in his image, we then desire to see justice made known. And with the idea of justice, we find it's important being made in the image of God that we're all treated as human beings with equality, dignity, and respect. It's demanding of that uh, from the Lord and being made in his image that all human beings would receive that. Now, when you study the word justice in the Old Testament, one of the ways we typically think about the word justice is uh, retributive justice, right? You have an injustice happening and then you have retributive justice returned in, in, in recognition of an injustice that's taken place. That's one form of justice. But when the Old Testament talks about justice, it's not, it's not only that type of justice that's discussed, the idea of retributive justice, but there's also an idea of, of restorative justice, that, that God, in being made in his image, that we as his people would take an extra step that when injustice is taking place or when someone is suffering or going through adversity, that we would take that step in meeting them in that struggle and helping them uh, being restored in that. So there's, there's this idea of retributive justice, and then there's this idea of restorative justice. There's also this word for righteousness, which is zedekah. And when we think about this word righteousness, we tend to think about of uh, being right, acting right in our behavior, which is a form of righteousness. It's, it's an appropriate way of thinking about righteousness is living righteously, right? But, but also with the word righteousness comes this idea of having right relationship. So if we, we were to walk in, in righteousness, we would expect in living a right life that it would also lean into the idea of having and enjoying relationship, having righteous relationship, having fellowship with, with one another and, and enjoying relationship between one another. When we think about those two terms or those two ideas, we find repeated throughout the Old Testament that this would be the type of behavior of, of God's people and the way that we were to live out our lives because it's reflective of the nature of God, not only being created in his image, uh, being made in his image as people that are of justice and righteousness, but it's also a reflection of what the gospel is all about. That God making us in his image, we desire justice, we, desire, we should desire righteousness, or at least we have a, a moral compass within us that, that can lean in that direction as we're obedient to God. But, but we also recognize in the brokenness of this world that things aren't the way that they should be. And, and thanks to the Lord, he, he gave us a way of hope, a way of opportunity through, through what we proclaim as his church, the gospel. And, and, and the way that we reflect the gospel in this world should also emulate the idea of justice and righteousness. And you see those themes repeated throughout scripture, the idea of justice and righteousness. In fact, when God's people do not behave in this way, um, there, is, there is judgment that God brings upon them because it's not reflective of the nature that the Lord puts with, uh, on them, especially in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 31 verse 8, look at this. 
Open your mouth for the people who cannot speak, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. So the outworking of us being made in the image of God in the, in the themes of justice and righteousness is that it would be emulated in, in our lifestyle, in our living, in, in connection to our relationship with the Lord. Jeremiah 22, verse 3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So a, a correct understanding of our relationship with God should be mimicked in the way that we live our lives. Our orthodoxy, what we believe, should lead to our orthopraxy and how, how we live. In fact, another verse I'll just throw up here, Psalm 146 verse 7 says this, execute justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry, the Lord frees the prisoner. In verse nine it goes on, the Lord watches over strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but look at this, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And the wicked in this passage is, is one who denies the justice and righteousness of the Lord. And in that you find God's judgment. But God's desire for his people is one of justice and righteousness. And the greatest demonstration, the greatest example we have of justice against injustice and righteousness when there is unrighteousness is Jesus. Jesus becomes the supreme example of, uh, of us in that Jesus it, it, it delivers the gospel, which is the restoration uh, of, of our lives in, in him being alienated to God because of our injustice towards the Lord. Jesus takes on uh, sin and therefore we find justice against uh, sin by his, his own life being sacrificed on our behalf. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says this, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning through Jesus, we again, we experience that right relationship with the Lord. Philippians chapter two, verse seven, it says this, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus and that, that type of, of justice, not just retributive justice, but restorative justice, he emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant. It tells us in Philippians two, verse seven, that we might find ourselves made righteous in Christ. Jesus' life was, was a deliverance of the gospel hope that would bring us freedom. And in that, we as his people should reflect the gospel in our lifestyle. Jesus' ministry was, was one that was marked by the idea of compassion and the idea of calm, meaning he's entering with, and passion, meaning suffering. It literally means with suffering. You enter with someone together in their suffering. You join with them to help them in that moment to find restoration in their struggle. And God even commands his people, and, and Micah 6, 8, it says this, he has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Justice is the way that we live. Mercy is the, or excuse me, uh, mercy is the attitude. To love mercy is the attitude in which we carry as we live out that justice, as we walk humbly with God because we understand 
that the reason we emulate that in the world is because of the Lord. And our relationship to him and what we've received through him. And so what these, these, these words, these thoughts, what Jesus' life teaches us is, is this. If, if we get the gospel, if we understand what we've received in Jesus and his life uh, given on, on our behalf, that we may find freedom in Christ and be declared righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. If we, if we get the gospel then the outflow of your life would be one of generosity. It would be one of wanting to mimic what you've received in Jesus because in Christ, through that freedom, you understand that you then become a living example of what you've been given in Christ and you can then bring that freedom to others and through that find that restorative justice, that righteousness and wholeness of relationship. Generosity becomes an outflow of the gospel. And this is exactly where the Apostle Paul goes today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of those pinnacle passages of Scripture in, in chapter 5, verse 17, anyone in Christ has become a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You've entered into this metamorphosis. And as I just said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who, became, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's on the understanding of that identity that we receive in Christ and what Jesus has reconciled for us and the brokenness of our own relationship towards God that as we step into that, as we embrace Jesus is our identity is now found in him, nothing in this world uh, that it has to offer, but rather completely in Christ as our lives has been has surrendered to the Lord, then we have opportunity now to mimic the beauty of Jesus. And that is seen in our generosity. You know, when we think in terms of, of, of generosity as a church, it's something that um, I have not spent very many messages talking about. I've been the pastor here for, I don't know, over a decade for sure, but I, I, I mean, was founding pastor, but, but over a, a decade. And, and I think at all the years, I've probably talked about forms of generosity just a couple of times. It's not something that we, we often reflect on as a church specifically. Uh, we, we don't just tailor messages to that. Um, but but we have seen throughout our history that we are a very generous church. One of the joys of being a pastor here at ABC is just seeing the generosity of our church family and the way that we give towards living on mission. It's a reflection of our understanding of the gospel. And not only that, we've been fortunate to, I think, d demonstrate good stewardship a as a church family in the way that we've given, like, 10% of our budget, I think really over 10% of our budget goes to, to missions and, and a lot of our ministries here, even if we don't count it as missions, is very, uh, very sacrificial, I, I, would, I would say, or uh, very... Uh, others focused in the way that we do ministry. In fact, if you're a part of Alpine Bible Church, you should know that uh, we don't do any of our spending as a church in the way that we use our money to, to, to proclaim the gospel. None of that is done secretively. Like once a year, we, we hand out our budget. If you're interested in it, you can see where we place our spending. So we don't, we don't hide that from us, as a, as a, from anyone as a congregation, part of our congregation here. We, we want you to be aware of how we're uh, leading to, to change as a church and living out what God calls calls us to for his kingdom and glory. But generosity is a mark of God's people when they understand the gospel. And so we're going to look at this passage today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to go through this quickly, verses 1 to 8. And we're going to talk about real generosity. What is it? 
What does Paul want us to know about it? Because here, here's what I find sometimes when we talk about the idea of generosity. And by the way, this doesn't just have to be monetarily. But when we talk about generosity, I, I find there's often a, a broad disconnect between what the gospel is and how we live our lives in a, in a, in a giving way. I think sometimes when you hear the idea of generosity shared within a, a congregation, it's often used in a way that's driven by guilt, and we don't connect it directly to, to the message which we are about and the way that we live our lives according to the gospel that's given to us in, in Christ. And so real generosity, what is a point number one in your notes, if you, if you grabbed a, the notes this morning, real generosity is moved by grace, not guilt. Real generosity is moved by grace, not guilt, which I find is contrary to my recent experiences in, in drive through lines when I, get, when I get lunch sometimes. Like it always happens to me. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm on an island to myself here, but I'll, I'll go through somewhere like Panda Express or something, I don't know, one of the drive through lines, and I'll order something, and without fail, they'll ask me every time, would you like to round up? And then they list some kind of thing to donate to, and then I'm stuck in a dilemma, right? I'm like, I, I didn't even plan to donate to anything, and now I feel forced to have to do this, and if I, if I say no, then I'm gonna look bad. I mean, but I want my 75 cents to make my choices and what I wanna generate, I wanna donate to. I don't just wanna give it to something without even thinking about it. But if I say no, then I'm going to look like a jerk. What do I do, right? So that's, that's giving by guilt. And that's not biblical giving at all. When we talk about biblical giving, real generosity is moved by grace, not guilt. And Paul starts to share this with us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. As he talks about the church in Macedonia, he says this. As he's writing to Corinth about Macedonia, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. He's, he's about to talk about their generosity, but he wants us to know that the, the thing that provoked the, the, the spirit of generosity within them was not this guilty conscience, but it was the idea of grace. It's this idea of understanding exactly what they've received in Christ. It's not, it's not just simply philanthropy or, or human kindness. It's the grace of God, which I find is so important to, to everything that we do as a church. When we're giving, we're not just giving because it's good to give, we're giving because it, it, it emulates a message of which we as a people are all about and we wanna to continue to proclaim that message. It is the gospel that gives people dignity, worth, value, and meaning. You, know, you think any other system in this world, people are, are, are taught your worth is based on what you can do. But it's Jesus who gives us worth and value and meaning, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for us. Made in his image. That means every, every human being is sacred. That's important to the Lord. Because every human being bears his image. And not only that, Jesus paid his life that we could find freedom in him. There is no greater worth you can find in life than the worth that Jesus gives to you. And it's not based on what you do, it's based on what he has done on your behalf. That message is incredible. In a world where people are just trying to find anywhere where they can grab acceptance and feel like they belong and know that they matter. We don't go into this world as God's people just to be good, simply to be good. I find a lot of people might give just so they can have the warm and fuzzies about being good and, and pat themselves on the back, but that is not the purpose that drives us in doing what we're doing. It is the message. 
It's the message of freedom that we receive in, in Jesus. And as we understand the grace of God that's been delivered to our lives, then we want to mimic that in the way that we choose to, to walk in this world. And, and Paul's saying this is exactly what the Macedonians are doing. They are rich in the gospel and they understand the freedom they've been given in Jesus. And in that, they want that message to go forth in this world. And they're taking of the things that they have in life, their, their, their gifts and their talents and their possessions, and they are being a people of generosity because they want others to discover this as well. Real generosity is moved by grace, not guilt. It's the effects of being saved and transformed and sanctified in, in Christ. One of the reasons we can often lack or struggle in the idea of generosity is because we lose sight of the grace of God that's been delivered to us and we stop thinking about what we receive in his grace and start thinking about what we feel we are owed. But Paul is saying the motive behind the church in Macedonia was one of generosity because of the grace of God given to them. Point number two is this. Real generosity transcends difficult circumstances. Look at this, verse two. Real generosity transcends difficult circumstances that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed and the wealth of their liberality. We'll read verse three in a minute. But a great ordeal of affliction, their, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in, in the wealth of liberality. I mean, Paul, if you look at these passages, Paul's pointing out to us the, just the irony of, of this generosity that's come from the Macedonians. He's pitting two words against each other that are really ju typically juxtaposed from one another. You don't, you don't think of these as complementary to each other, but Paul lays it out like this anyway, right? This great deal of affliction and this abundant joy. Or, or this deep poverty, and yet they're overflowing in wealth. That typically makes no sense, right? But what, what Paul wants us to identify is that the church in Macedonia, though, though physically they may go, be going through some adversity in the life, uh, the, their hope is not wrapped up in those things. But rather their, their hope is, is found in the Lord, and so they're able to transcend the difficult circumstances and, and look beyond where they are to what they ultimately have in Jesus and what's incredible about the, ch the church in Macedonia, the church in Macedonia was an abysmally poor region. They were, they were in northern Greece where Alexander the Great had ruled and, and Rome had come in and conquered this area of the world. And, and this was just known as a, a place where there just was not a lot of wealth. And, and when you look in early church history, you'll see, if you, if you study on a map, this is, this is the place where you'll find Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. And, and when you read the New Testament, you'll often hear Paul record about these churches, just how much of a struggle they, they endured. In, in Acts chapter 17, that's the place where Jason was drug out and, and, and and beat in public and in the book of First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 listen to this you also became imitators talking to the church of Thessalonica you became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for you pers your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
devout Christians who understand the gospel. Don't wait until they have more in order to give. They give despite their poverty or they even give within their poverty. They find that challenges are just opportunities to think differently about how they're going to serve the Lord and show the depth of their love for him. This brings me to point number three then. Point number three is this, real generosity is sacrificial. Real generosity is sacrificial. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily. I don't know why I keep leaving the next verse on there, but verse three. They gave according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily. Generosity for them was was sacrificial. Uh, Some of us, when we hear the word sacrificial, we might think to ourselves, well, I just need to wait until I have enough to give to God because what I have to offer to the Lord really isn't gonna make that, that big of a difference. But, but, but I wanna remind us, guys, when we think about whatever the Lord has blessed you with and whatever gifts, talents, resources you might have in, in your life, it's not about the size of the gift, but rather it's about the heart of the, of the giver. God is never gonna be impressed by the amount or the size of your gifts. God owns the cattle of thousand hills. There's nothing you're gonna do when you wake up to to impress God in that way, but rather he is blessed by the heart of of your giving. And it's to simply encourage us this way, don't underestimate what God can do with any size of any gift. And, and, And what I mean, maybe I should say it like this, in John chapter six, Remember, it's the story of, of a young boy who comes, follows after Jesus with, with just his lunch and with just a few loaves and a few fish. God feeds thousands. It's not about the size of the gift, but the heart of the giver. And what's incredible about the church in Corinth, when they give, they're giving, genero- they're giving sacrificially in their generosity. It says this, They give beyond their ability. They give beyond their ability. You know, sometimes within Christianity and our our unique subculture of of our Jesus followers, we often throw around the the idea of when we give to the Lord, we should give 10%. And we refer to that as a tithe. But I want you to know in the New Testament, um, there is no word for tithing. And and, and 10% is not even an accurate number. Um, And when it comes from the Old Testament, and when you study the, the giving in the Old Testament, 10% was just the starting point. <laughs> in the Old Testament, people gave far more than 10% if they were obedient to the Lord. And in the New Testament, it's, it's this idea of giving generously, giving freely, and giving sacrificially. And it's not a, it's, the word tithing is not even used. But God's interest in all of it is, is that our giving would be from the heart out of a joy for the Lord because we understand exactly what God has, has done for us in giving his life. In First Chronicles chapter 21, there's a story of King David who wanted a plot of land to, to honor the Lord and make a sacrifice on it. And this man named Ornan just wanted to give it to David because he was the king. And, and David responded this way. He says this in First Chronicles 21, 24. No, I will not take it, but I certainly, I will, I'll, will certainly buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. 
David understood that giving to the Lord was a way to to sacrifice and demonstrate that his life was about loving the Lord in response. And without an opportunity to give in a way that that cost him, he couldn't truly demonstrate his love towards God. A, A famous pastor from the 1800s, John Jewett, said this, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And not only do we see in this passage that they're giving beyond their ability, but also says that they gave voluntarily. That this wasn't something they were guilted into, but this something that they desired for their lives. And I can imagine the Apostle Paul in this moment thinking about the church of Macedonia. We just read all the verses of everything they went through in their lives. And the Apostle Paul, he, he, he could have said to us, he could have said, I, I wasn't going to ask the church of Macedonia to even give. How could I? They're a church that had gone through such extreme poverty. But when he's writing the church of Corinth, he's as if he's saying to us, but but when you saw this church of poverty, start with this voluntary attitude in the grace of God. When they started to give generously, even sacrificially, and tears started just welling up in my eyes to see that love for Christ. They wanted to do something that made a difference. They felt compelled like they had to do something that would make a difference. And so they gave, not of guilt, but voluntarily for the Lord. Point number four, real generosity is a privilege, not an obligation. Real generosity is a privilege, not an obligation. And they, Paul goes on saying, Macedonia was begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. Paul's identifying here that the attitude of the church is they, they saw a place where, where they knew if they had, could contribute to the cause, it would make a difference for the sake of the gospel. And so as their eyes were, were carrying the heart of God in this world, they were looking for opportunity to, to make a difference in the way that they live for the Lord. And they saw that opportunity and they, they didn't want to step away from it. But even in their poverty, they were willing to, to move forward, to give voluntarily, to give sacrificially, that, that the gospel would go forth and lives would be transformed and God's church would continue to, to grow in its mission and opportunity given to it. And guys, I... When I read verses like that, I, I think about our church. The beautiful place that we stand and the opportunity that, that God gives to us uh, to, to make a difference in this world as we take of the, the talents and the resources and the opportunities that, that the Lord gives, gives before his people to, to stand up and, and to do something about it. And when I, when I think about the future of our church, I, I, I live in this, this position where you want to, you wanna, as, as a follower of the Lord, be thankful for all that God has done in the past, and I am. And I look back over our, our history together, and I just rejoice in God's gracious hand. And I, and I think about the moment where we are and just being content. If God doesn't, does nothing more with us as his people, just, just being able to have the opportunity to rejoice in, in the presence of, his, of the Lord and knowing uh, where we sit in God is the best place we could be in relationship to him. But, but at, at the same time, to also look to the future because the gospel continues to give us hope. And when I think about ABC, I think the, the best days for us are in front of us. And, and I often say this to us as a church family that we wanna be a church that lives to give itself away for the sake of the gospel. 
and where we can go for the Lord is based on God's people being willing to lay themselves down for the, for the sake of this gospel with an attitude of generosity, knowing the grace of God that's been given to us. And the limitations in that will only be found really in our lack of desiring to be generous and what God has done through us and for us. I mean, when I, when I think about our future, and I know I haven't had an opportunity to share a lot about this, but as a church right now, some of the things that we're working on, like there, there's a possibility within the next year, our church will be able to offer a, a master's of divinity that's accredited. Um, to be able to, 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 to train people and spin out from here more church planters. I, I really think the future of our church will have a hand before I die of seeing a church in every town in Utah. And we're looking at right now working on, on a land deal which could give us a future home that we're in negotiating with right now. The idea uh, of a seminary to be off, offering a master's of divinity. We're talking, we're running our food pantry and have opportunity to expand that. Some, some refugee ministry um, as a church being able to ex, expand in that. In, intern housing, we continue to, to give towards missions and, and making a difference in, in, in that capacity. I, the potential to reach Utah to think bigger than ourselves, to not be just about ourselves, but a church of generosity because we find ourselves resting in the grace of God thanks to the gospel. It is in, in, incredible. Number five, rich, rich generosity is an act of worship. Verse number five says this, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Real generosity is an act of worship. First priority of the Macedonians was not to just simply give stuff to God. First priority in the Macedonians was to wholeheartedly give themselves to the Lord. It wasn't just about giving stuff to God. But rather what primarily drove everything this church did was that they had given their heart to the Lord. The supreme act of worship is, is not giving money, it's not attending church, it's not singing Christian songs, but rather it's giving of oneself to the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, a holy priesthood is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, which begins with yourself. God's primary interest in your life it's not your money. It's not your abilities. It's your heart. What God wants more than anything this morning, it's you. Real generosity is an act of worship. And when God gets your heart, he changes your life you look at things around you differently. You start to look at things with the eyes of Jesus, carrying his concern for the things of this world. And you start asking the question then, how, how can I best honor this God who gave his life for me that I could find freedom in him? And you start to use those opportunities uh, to leverage yourself for his glory to the benefit of others. Real generosity is an act of worship. Number six, Real generosity inspires. So we urge Titus 
that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Paul's saying, as, we see, as we've seen what the Macedonians are doing, we, we want to share it with you, Corinth, and we're sending Titus down. And this is, this is contagious to see this working among God's people. And now you have this opportunity to be a part of that. And real generosity inspires. And again, it's not, we're not just talking financially. We're talking about anytime anyone just lays down their life for the Lord. One of my, one of my favorite things to do is just read church history. To read about the, the great saints that have gone before us and how they've, they've lived their lives, how God had transformed their world and then they started to live their lives for his glory and they would go anywhere for the sake of the gospel to the ends of the earth at, at sacrifice to their own life that they could share with Jesus to, to a lost and dying world. And it is inspiring. I mean, that's the basis of, of Hebrews 11 and 12, isn't it? That you get the hall of faith of, of great Christians or great followers of the Lord that lived out a, a life of faith. And then it says, now run the race that is set before you, looking to the author and perfecter of your faith. It, it encourages our life. You see this happening with Corinth. Now, Paul is using this illustration of, of, of the most impoverished group of, of believers. And he said, look at what they did and how God is working. It's been incredible. And, and now we're sharing this story with you and, and your story can become an inspiration to other believers in the way that you've given your life to Christ. And it, it spurs other Christians on to, to do the same for the work of the gospel for the sake of others. And last is this. Real generosity reveals spiritual health. Real generosity reveals spiritual health, and, and Paul says it like this, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, speaking, knowledge, and in all earnestness, and, and the love we inspired in you, uh, see, see that you also excel in this gracious work. I'm not saying this as a command, but, uh, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. So Paul, Paul is saying, look, uh, you're excelling in everything. And the, and the way that this happens for God's people is that when your heart is completely surrendered to God, the, the fruit of the Spirit is what's manifested. It's not just a portion of the fruit of the Spirit. It's all of the fruit of the Spirit. And, and Paul's listening to that. Like, uh, you're excelling in everything because as you've given your life to the Lord, so all of this becomes an outworking of your life. Even to the point, he says in this last verse, this idea of love. And love is a, one that gives itself away sacrificially, agape, unconditionally for, for one another. And so the outworking of that is your life is laid down and if you're going to excel in everything is this, this idea of generosity should be demonstrated in your life. You can measure the health of a Christian's life in direct proportion to the generosity of their heart. Let me say that one more time. You can measure the health of a Christian life in direct proportion to the generosity within their heart. Generosity is not something that takes place in a vacuum. It's not isolated from other Christian virtues, but becomes the center of everything that we are in Jesus. To not live that way is to demonstrate that we don't understand what the gospel is or that we're warring against it. But when we recognize what Jesus has done in our lives, the demeanor of God's people is one of generosity. 
And I'm not saying it works like a light switch where you just wanna turn it on sometimes so you can say you're a generous person and then turn it back off. I'm saying the attitude of God's people as we walk through this world is looking for an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God as he has made himself known in our lives. It is a perpetual, generous spirit that we could step into this world with the idea of restorative justice, gospel justice and righteousness, reconciliation to relationships because of what Jesus has done for us. It's not just philanthropy. It's not just human kindness. It's directly rooted into our identity in Christ, being made in his image and discovering the grace of the freedom of God made known to us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The gospel becomes the outworking of how then we should step in choosing to live our lives to proclaim the goodness of God that others may discover it too. And so we think about a, a generous people, it's important that we don't, we, we don't separate it from what the gospel is, but we understand it as the direct outworking of everything that the gospel declares as we choose to walk in this world as a generous people. Which, let me give you this last illustration to close. During the civil rights movement, there were a lot of African-American churches that were targeted and burned. And in Mississippi, there were a group of white Christian believers decided that that was enough. And so they got together and they appointed a representative among the white churches in the South to say, we want to send you as a representative to the African-American churches in our communities to, to build a bridge and see that this, these hate crimes stop. And so this, this individual, one morning, drove up to another African-American church that was laying in ruins as the smoke continued to billow from the ground. And he said in that moment, tears began to well in his eyes. And then he recalled, as he looked upon that burnt building, he recalled the words of Isaiah 61 verse 3. And he prayed a prayer. In Isaiah 61, verse 3, it says, God will grant a garland, a garland of beauty from the ashes. And, and he prayed a prayer as he thought, that word, uh, thought about that passage. He says, God, give unto them beauty from the ashes. And he vowed in that moment that with God's help, he would do just that for, the, for those people. And with that dedication against that injustice, he started to take a stand. And he shared from his experience of what he saw that was going against the African-American community in the area in which he lived. And before you know it, God's people started to give. They started to give and they started to rebuild everything that was destroyed by the hatred of man. They stepped into that moment and, and they gave opportunity for justice and righteousness to be made known. And from the ashes, there came beauty and the opportunity for all of God's people, regardless of their race, to praise the Lord together because of his grace. And guys, in our world today, there is still brokenness. They're still hurting. And there is plenty of opportunity for God's people to do something about it. And you don't have to step into that with all of the wealth in the world. It's not about the size of your gift. It's about the heart of the giver. And when God's people understand the grace of God that has been given to them, 
The attitude that we carry through this world as we journey is one of generosity because we know it mimics the gospel of a God who stepped into our brokenness and brought his justice and righteousness that we could be healed. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.